0: Let's pray together before you sit down, if you don't mind. Almighty God and Father, we worship you this afternoon. We lift up your name as the great name above every other name. And we cry out to you to rend the heavens and to come down among us by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, we cry out to you to renew our hearts today in worship. With the fire of your love, that our hearts would be thawed and warmed again as we contemplate your great love. We thank you that your word is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates to dividing soul from spirit and joints from marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. God, we thank you that you have spoken and that by your speaking, life comes into us, and we can be more like we were created to be—more alive, more full of love, more full of life. God, I pray for every one of us in this room that you—you you know our hearts. There are no secrets with you. Whatever reasons that we have for being here, I pray that you would let us be attentive to you now, and that you would address us, and that. My message and my preaching would not be with wise and persuasive words of human wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that our faith might not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. That is our only hope, O God. We only have hope in you. So come and bless your word. Make it fruitful. We pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. 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 You can be seated. It is a joy to be with you today. A little bit overwhelming, honestly, but a joy and very surprising. I'd like to draw your attention to John's Gospel, chapter 13, and specifically to verses 34 and 35, where Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this will all people know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let me start by clearing up a confusion. Jesus says a new commandment. And if you know your Bible, you will know That this commandment to love is a commandment that was given by God through Moses in Leviticus 19, 18, early in the formation of God's people, love your neighbor as yourself. And that when rabbis in the days of Jesus would discuss the law and try to summarize it, they would use what Jesus used, the summary of the law, love the Lord, your God, and to love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus says it's a new commandment. So what distinctly is new here for Jesus? Jesus. And I would submit to you that there is a newness in the qualifier, as I have loved you, that up to this point, the commandment to love one another didn't have the vivid, clear, perfect, and beautiful example of the love of Jesus for us. And Jesus is now saying, this is the way that you're called to love. In John, in, in, uh, in the first verse of John 13, John tells us that Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, loved them to the telos, or to the end, or to the utter, uttermost. The Dutch commentator Hermann Ritterbos reminds us that telos has both a temporal and an intensive meaning. This was love to the last breath, love to its highest intensity. So there's a sense in which this is new because of the new clarity of Jesus's example for us of, as to what love looks like as he goes to the cross. It's also new because of the new possibilities that are coming with the new, the new covenant community and the descent of the spirit and the possibility to now walk in accordance with God's ways, particularly the way of love. So it's, it is new in some sense, even though it's been there all along. This new community of love is what I would like to have as our subject for our time together in God's word today. And I want to take a moment to explain to you why I had the whole Bible to choose from to come to you today. And this is where God landed me. The senior minister search committee, the elders, the staff, the leadership council have heard and in certain cases have experienced in their own lives the story of how God has brought us to this point. And by us, I mean Park Street Church and my family and me. It's a place that I never expected to be, and a place that I never planned to be. Of course, we have one more step to take together of discernment this afternoon, and I look forward to, I think, your questions. (laughs) And I've been praying for this time because of your questions, uh, as I'm sure most of you have as well. This story, in my life at least, is extraordinary unlike anything that I or my wife have ever experienced in our lives. There's not even a close second. It's a story that in the flesh makes little sense, but in the spirit has been confirmed time and time again in countless ways, ways that are humbling, ways that are personal, ways that are overwhelming. Many of you have heard me say that I feel like I'm standing before our apple tree on a bumper crop year. Our apple tree has a bumper crop every two years. And it's, fl- it's flooded with fruit, and the branches start to break under the weight of all the apples. And every piece of fruit on this tree represents a story. I could pick the piece of fruit off and tell you a story of how God has been supernaturally at work, at least in my life, in the midst of this process. It's really overwhelming. And this sermon today is part of that story. The day after David Ricks called me to let me know that I was the final candidate of the search committee back in December, he called me on December 17th. I woke up at 4.30 in the morning on Wednesday morning, December 18th, with this sermon clearly in my head, having only slept for three and a half hours the night before because once David called, Mandy's in my world was spinning and it was spinning in a big way, but we knew that God was in control. I do want to assure you all that this is not my normal process of sermon preparation. Somebody asked that question. (laughs) Though I hope it happens more and more. But then again, to be fair, this is not my normal sermon moment. So I think God has been gracious. So at 4.30, I got out of bed, sat down at my desk, pulled out my computer and jotted down what has become the outline of this sermon that you're about to hear. And I knew this was from God for this moment maybe you won't think so after you hear it, but it is my heart for you. It is my heart for the church more broadly, the church with a capital C. And I do believe that it is God's call upon all of our lives, those of us who proclaim Jesus as Lord. When we finished the meeting here last Wednesday night, the leadership council meeting, Judy Borgen, who I understand has been here forever, closed us in prayer. And among other things, she prayed this, God, God, I feel like I'm part of a family again. Judy's prayer was such an encouragement to me that God is moving because at the heart of my convictions about Park street Church is I've prayed for God to call the right person into this role alongside all of you. I've been praying actually for this role for over three years, because as a minister in the city of Boston, I believed that this was important that God call the right person into this role for the sake of the city and for the sake of his name, and for the sake of the church here. And I began praying that prayer long before this past July when God moved in my heart. And if you come to the meeting, I'll share more of that story then. But this has been the sense deep in me that this church could deepen. It could deepen in becoming more of a family, more of a community of love. That's what families, after all, are supposed to be. And that's what Jesus calls us, the church, his bride, to be. And we see that abundantly clearly in our text for this time together in John 13. So we'll begin at the end in verse 35, where Jesus asserts that our defining mark is love. And then I want to move to verse 34 to explain the nature of that love. And finally, we'll ask how we might live more fully this life of love. So let's start with the defining mark, verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let me ask you, how do you think the church is known to outsiders, to the people out on the common right now? How do you think we're known? 15 years ago, I was teaching a course at Belhaven University on discipleship and evangelism with some upperclassmen. And uh, I came up with this idea that we were gonna go door to door just to do a survey to ask people how they perceived Christianity in the church. I gave the students this prompt. This is what they were supposed to say. I'm sure they didn't like me for this, but um, it was a little uncomfortable, but I did it myself as well. Good evening. We are students from Belhaven and we're conducting a survey for a class through which we're trying to gather people's perceptions of Christians in the church. We would really like to know your honest perspectives and opinions. Would you be willing to take five minutes to answer a few questions for us? They asked them questions about how people perceived the Christian church. And do you want to know what the most common repeated answer was? It's a little harsh, hypocritical. You're a people that proclaim one thing. You speak about this gospel. You speak about love, but really what we see is backbiting or what I have experienced. People would talk about their own experiences from the church. What are we known for? In its long history, Park Street Church has become known for many things, many wonderful things. There is the clear preaching of the gospel that for more than two centuries has come from this pulpit. You know, Park Street was founded, of course, in 1809 to be a place that heralded orthodoxy in a city where Unitarian theology was beginning to sweep through the churches. Several weeks before entering the process last August, I read and was moved deeply by Edward Dore Griffin's Building Dedication Sermon preached here on January 10th, 1810, where he said, This house has been built by those who esteem it far from indifferent what doctrines a man believes and who doubt not that his religion will take its shape from the articles of his faith. This church was built to proclaim the apostolic faith And it's been doing so for a long time by the grace of God. That is an amazing gift. It's a miracle, really, of God's love and grace. I want to say to you that the need in our day is no different. Perhaps it's even greater when the world has largely perceived the message that we declare as failed or tried and found wanting. And when churches all around us are revising the orthodox faith for something that is more plausible to the spirit of our age. May we never back down from courageously, clearly, winsomely, and compassionately declaring the whole counsel of God as he has revealed it to us in his word. This and this alone is the path to life. This is how the church will be built and fed and nourished. Remember what Jesus said to Peter in John 21 as he was restoring him, feed my sheep. For man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Another feature by which this church has been known is the radical and generous commitment to world missions, a commitment that was present from the beginning. In 1812, your first pastor, Griffin, represented Park Street at the commemoration or at the commissioning service for Adoniram Judson and four other young men who were the first missionaries to go off from the shores of North America to the Far East. I know last fall you celebrated the 200th anniversary of the planting of a church in the Hawaiian Islands. And honestly, missions was the first thing that brought this church to my attention and commendation. When in 2012, I read Garth Rosell's 2008 work, The Surprising Work of God, in which he details how Harold Ockingay led the church to codify its commitment to missions by dedicating much of your budget to serve the cause of missions and by inaugurating an annual missions conference that you still give 40% of your annual budget to missions is exemplary and something that I have constantly held up as a model. Then there's the beauty and centrality of this location and and this building and its steeple. I'm sure when you ask most people in this city, what do you think of? When you think of Park Street Church, they say that big white steeple, that towers over the T-stop and the common though now surrounded by high-rise commercial buildings and residential buildings, it still features in the skyline of our city. And for the past 10 years, I've commuted on my bike from Jamaica Plain to Back Bay via the Southwest Corridor and then Columbus Avenue, which when Columbus Avenue was laid down in 1860, the engineer was told to site it directly off the steeple of Park Street Church. And so I would look up often and be encouraged by the sight of this steeple, towering and pointing up to the heavens. There are institutions that this church has been integral in beginning, many of which still by God's grace impact our city and often impact and some of which impact the landscape of the church in our nation. There's the beauty of musical worship, which was overwhelming just a few minutes ago, that has been a feature of this church since the Park Street Singing Society was founded on January 16, 1810. But as wonderful and as laudable and as necessary as these things are in the compelling history and reality of this church. And as much as I would strive to see them flourish and grow were God to call me here to be your pastor, Jesus on the night before he was crucified, when he could have said anything to his disciples, told us that he wanted his people to be known for something else. It's simple. It may even be a letdown for for those of us who primarily want something a bit more grand. But he says it in verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I do want to ask you honestly, is this how Park Street Church is known? Is this how the church in Boston is known? By our love for one another. Is this our highest aim? I obviously can't speak to this in relation to Park Street Church yet. I don't know you well enough, but I look forward, should God complete this story today, to getting to know you, to listening a lot, to hearing how you do this really well, and how you need to grow, and to setting out with reckless abandon, with everything that we can, to become more and more a community of love so that this church can be recognized even above its programs, above its steeple, above its preaching, above its missions, above its music, by the love that its members have for one another. All these laudable dimensions of the church are given integrity by our love. So this love starts with the people sitting in this room right now. I'd actually like you to just take a minute to look around. I don't normally do these kinds of things, but just turn your head at least for a second. Look around. It's these particular people. If you really didn't like that, I really don't do that often, just to be clear. Um, It's these particular people though, these beautiful and broken people, some of whom you like and some of whom like you. Some of whom, yeah, just some, just some. Some of whom you don't prefer, that's a nice way of putting it, and some of whom don't prefer you some of whom that you're drawn to and others that you are repelled by. But these are the people that you are called to love. These particular people, they have names like David, Linda, Leslie, Richard, Jim, Jason, Margaret, and hundreds more. And they have stories, stories full of joy, full of overcoming, full of pain, full of heartache and bereavement, full of confusion and anxiety and fear. They're not easy to love, but neither are you and neither are mine. It's only easy to love people in the abstract. It's always really difficult to love people right next to you, people in the concrete, the particular. So this one another starts with the local church of which we are a part. And I obviously know that there are unique challenges in a larger church with its its organizational complexity and its geographic spread. But I want to say to you emphatically that the greatest challenge that any church faces is not in its size or its structures, but is in each of our hearts. That's where the challenge is. And we must face this challenge with courage and honesty because Jesus says that this, our love for one another, is our primary identifier. It's our defining mark. It's what we're to be known for. What if every person in this room began to take that first step? You may already be taking 100 steps. Take the 101st step this week to begin to express that kind of love for one another. I also want to say this one another extends beyond the walls of the local church to Christians from all other churches that proclaim the name of Jesus above all. And that includes Christians of different traditions, of different ethnicities, Christians in your workplace and in your neighborhood, Christians on the other side of the political spectrum, and Christians on the other side of the globe from you. A lack of love between gospel-proclaiming churches in this city is just as heartbreaking to God as a lack of love between the members in any particular church. Love for one another is to be expressed between us all because Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And nobody was excluded from that. Everybody who proclaims Jesus as king is included in that call to be loved. Wouldn't it be great if we went door-to-door in Boston, and ask people what their perception is of the Christian church, that they would say, man, they really love each other well. Let's move to the second part. Turning to verse 34. To learn more about the nature of this love. It's one thing to exhort us to love. What does it mean to love? Jesus says in verse 34, a new new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. We are to love as Jesus loved. So the question simply is, how did Jesus love? And the short answer that John gives us, that all the gospel writers give us, is that he went to the cross for you and for me. That's what the foot washing encounter earlier in John 13 is pointing to. Again, that's what the whole Gospel of John is pointing to. Jesus washes the disciples' feet to point to what he will do the next day, dying on the cross on their behalf. And he says in verse 15, For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. you, So let me ask what can we learn about our love for one another by looking at Jesus' love for us at the cross? And here's the sentence I want to unpack. This love aims for our good, and it's directed toward the undeserving at whatever cost and under all conditions. This love aims for our good, it's directed at the undeserving at whatever cost and under any conditions. And the primary thought here is that love aims for our good. Love is a disputed concept. It's a heralded word in our culture. But the love of Christ is not mere sentimentality. It is not rooted in warm and fuzzy feelings or pleasant feelings. And the love of Christ is not merely acceptance, a kind of non judgmental affirmation of who I am. Unlike these prevalent misunderstandings of love that are commonplace in our culture today, the love of Jesus is tenacious and strong. It is more passionate than sentimentality and more affirming than mere acceptance. It's a love that includes the deepest embrace imaginable, an embrace for which we were all made and for which we all deeply long. The Holy Lord of glory loves and welcomes you as you are. But that embrace that we all long for is an embrace that also and always leads to transformation. A transformation for every one of us. Because this love, this love of God for us, this love of Christ expressed on the cross is a love that is calibrated to our good on the basis of truth. If you read the materials closely, you'll know that I spent my first couple of working years after college as the adventure program director at a whitewater rafting and backpacking company in the heart of the Rockies in Colorado. And I was responsible for the backpacking and rock climbing programs, which meant that I was also responsible to train our guide staff of 65 in those skills. We developed a training exercise for our second-year guides who were learning how to be trip leaders on mountaineering trips and therefore needed to know how to use a map and a compass which was often quite challenging. And we developed this exercise to blindfold them. We took them we blindfolded them at the at the headquarters of the company and then we threw them on, you know, the old rafting the rafting companies have these old school buses. We threw them on the old school bus, blindfolded, and we drove them off into the mountains for about 45 minutes and then dropped them off in the forest with a map and a compass. They had to determine their location on the topographic map in front of them using a process that we call in the mountaineering world triangulation, which meant that they had to identify three prominent landmarks, find those landmarks on the topographic map, take a bearing with the compass off the landmark, and then draw a line on the map using the straight edge of the compass. And as you drew three lines, one, two, three, if you did it right, hopefully you had a really little triangle. If it was a big triangle, it was probably not right. But if you had a little triangle, that was where you were. And then you can begin to chart your course to a stated goal. I offer that to you as an illustration of Christian love. Christian love is not floating at sea. It's not unmoored. It is deeply connected to the truth. And it triangulates off three great features of the truth That God has revealed truth about him, truth about God himself, that God is our creator, the author of life, the one that every heart beats for and no heart will be satisfied until we rest in him. The truth about us, that we are dependent creatures, not autonomous beings, dependent creatures created for worship, created to know and to love and to serve the God who has spoken this world into being. And the truth about sin and evil, that these realities traffic in attractive, false, counterfeit promises. Just like the tree in Genesis 3, the fruit was pleasing to the eye, offering us life and only delivering heartache, disappointment, futility, and in the end, death. And the love of Jesus for us is a love that is calibrated off of these three landmarks, the truth about God, the truth about us, the truth about sin. And that's what charts his bold path right to the cross of Calvary for your sake and for mine, because this is what we all need. And we may not know that this is what we need. We may not know that we need reconciliation with God and life in him, but Jesus knows. And so he goes to the cross because he is aiming for our good, for our well-being in its deepest sense possible. As his love aims for our good, it has teeth, unlike the common idea of love as non-judgmental affirmation. That idea, by the way, seems right at first glance. It seems loving to just welcome someone and keep them as they are, but it doesn't seek our flourishing other than by telling us to be ourselves, which quite honestly, most of us who know ourselves isn't really the answer. We know that, we know that we're messed up. And we know that the further in that we look for the right answers, the more lost we will become. We need someone to address us from the outside. Someone to speak to us words of life and truth. And that's what Jesus does. Remember Jesus' interaction with the rich young man in Mark chapter 10? Mark records this for us and he says, Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And then he said to him, young man, one thing you lack Go and sell all your possessions and give the proceeds to the poor and then come and follow me. That was love, Mark says. That wasn't an easy thing to say. Those were the faithful wounds of a friend, not the profuse kisses of an enemy, to quote Proverbs 27.6. That was Jesus loving this man by pointing out his idolatry, by pointing out that which was holding him back from knowing the true God and knowing the life that he would bring. Jesus's love has teeth because Jesus's love is aiming for our good. Jesus is willing to risk something comfortable from keeping the status quo to ruffle our feathers because he loves us so deeply. And we're called to that same kind of love that aims at a person's good. Another way of saying this is that genuine love, Christian love, doesn't always feel like love. And I want to say, that's not, if if you're the person who likes to be a straight shooter like I am, just to be clear, that that is not an excuse to be brash or harsh. In fact, the opposite is quite necessary. All the fruits of the Spirit are to be evident in our lives alongside of love. Colossians 3 talks about putting on all these virtues, and it says, and over all these things, put on love which binds them all together in perfect harmony. The timing and the prompting of the Holy Spirit are paramount in how we exercise Christian love, but we need to remember that true love can wound like a surgeon's knife in order to produce something far better, far more healthy and far fuller. Are you willing to love like that? Are you willing to receive love like that. As love aims for our good, it is further directed at the undeserving, whatever the cost, and under any conditions. Did we deserve the cross? Well, in one sense, we did. We deserved to be on it. Did we deserve that the eternal Son of God made flesh? Would take his place on the cross for us? Absolutely not. We've betrayed Jesus, we've disappointed him, we've denied him, and he sought our good anyway. Let me ask, who was Jesus known for loving during his earthly ministry? Do you remember? It was the sinners, the tax collectors, and the prostitutes. And the insiders of his day were upset about this. They thought he was loving the wrong people. He was spending time with the wrong crowd because they didn't understand that they were just as sick as those, those others. They didn't understand that they needed the touch of the great physician just as much as those that they knew were far outside the bounds of God's love. What about us? Is there someone in this room, I'm gonna get personal, Is there someone in this room right now that because of the way that they've treated you or something that he or she has said about you or his or her opinion on a contentious issue that doesn't align with yours, that you just feel they're not deserving of your love? And you're right, they're not. They don't deserve it. I want you to get that person in your head. And while you're at it, I want you to think about who may have just put you in their head. (laughs) To love as Jesus loved means to be a radical forgiver and to love the undeserving. I'd love for you to ask God to lead you, to turn your heart and your mind to love that person, possibly even in a tangible way in the week ahead, and at least in your prayers, which is a great way to love someone to bring them before the throne of grace. It's for the undeserving, whatever the cost. Jesus didn't hold anything back. He loved us to the telos, to the end, to the uttermost. In time and intensity, to his final breath, and this act of self-giving love, John says in our passage in verse 31, now is the son of man glorified. This is what Jesus says, and God is glorified in him. This kind of love, this love that doesn't hold anything back, that pays whatever costs must be paid, is a love that glorifies the God who made us, the God of heaven and earth. When Jesus is on the cross displaying to the world the depth of the love of God for his creatures, He says, this is, this is when God is glorified. This is when God is most on public display. This is when that love that God is defined by is made known to all the onlookers, all the doubters, all the mockers, all the betrayers. See it here, this is what it looks like. This is his love and it holds nothing back. I wonder if we could love like that. And it's under any conditions. I mentioned that I commute on my bike and I do love cycling. I raced road bikes when I was in my teens, and one of the joys of moving to the city many, many years ago was getting to start to ride my bike on a more regular basis. But there are bike commuters, and then there are four-season bike commuters, (laughs) Uh, some of you are sitting here, I'm sure, who ride your bike when it's in the teens or single digits. Few people are on the bike paths with you in that moment. Unlike bike commuting for most of us, however, love is not an activity to engage in only when the conditions are right. And I submit to you Jesus as the example. As he marches to the cross, he's in incredible pain. As he walks to the cross, he's been betrayed by his friends. He's fatigued. He's gasping for breath, and he feels forsaken by God. Let me ask you, or let me tell you about me. I don't know about you, but when I am tired, when I'm in pain, when I'm feeling beat up, when I feel like things just aren't going my way, I tend to retreat from love, to lick my wounds, to take care of myself, And let me caveat and say I really want to be careful here and acknowledge that we do need to pursue health in our lives in order that we might be able to live and to love like Jesus lived and loved. There is a necessary work of cultivating health in us that looks different and yet similar for all of us. And I don't want to disparage that. But let's be challenged for a moment by our Savior because Jesus didn't do that. He could have. Remember what he said to his disciples in in Gethsemane when the soldiers came and arrested him? He said, look, I could call down 12 legions of angels. And you kind of think, why didn't you when they were mocking you on the cross and say, if he is the son of God, then let him come down, but Jesus won't come down. He remains silent because of his deep love. He keeps pouring out love in the midst of pain, in the midst of fatigue, in the midst of feeling God forsaken. Jesus loves so much that he will say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This love that Jesus loves with is a love that pours out under all conditions, even the harshest of conditions. And we are called to love like that. This of course requires a revolution, a revolution in every single one of our hearts, because in sin, we are hardwired to be selfish. We are hardwired to look out for ourselves. It's no wonder that Jesus says, unless one is born again, one cannot enter the kingdom of God earlier in John three. There is, I am convinced, no casual version of Christianity. It's an all-or-nothing affair. We cannot serve two masters. As Jesus said in Mark 8, there is no other way to be his disciple than to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Those are his terms, because he loves us. And as we walk with him in this way, it will lead to a glorious transformation in our lives. If we understand Christianity as something other than this complete revolution, something far safer or less involved in that, than that, then I'm afraid that we've misunderstood it. Shifting to the final now and concluding parts of our time together, I'm guessing that this probably feels impossible. So I want to ask to close, how can we live this way of love? How can we follow Jesus? How can we love one another as Jesus has loved us? Let's turn back in John 13 to a moment for this interaction between Jesus and Peter in the foot washing scene that you might remember. It's in verse eight. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Peter was appalled that Jesus, his Lord and teacher, should take such a low place. But Jesus insists, and he not only insists, he declares to Peter that unless you let me wash me, there's no share, Peter, in my kingdom. There's no share in my glory. There's no share in this new community that I'm building around myself. There will be no part in the community of love if you don't let me wash you, Peter. That is to say, unless we share in the defining and foundational reality of being washed by Jesus, receiving his forgiveness and his love in a deep way. We will never take our part or take our place in the community that he has founded. It is essential and it is the only way forward. Let me put it this way. Before just as I have loved you or as I have loved you in verse 34 is an example or a model to us, which it is, and that's what Jesus is upholding to us in this text. It is simply if we drop the just as or the as. I have loved you. This must be our defining reality if we are to live and to love like Jesus. We haven't had this experience yet this winter, but remember a morning when you knew it was gonna be snowing all night and you got up out of bed and you looked out the window. At least remember that morning when you were in fifth grade. Maybe it's not a joyful moment for you now. (laughs) There's powder everywhere and the cars on the street look like big marshmallows and the trees are bowed down under the weight of the snow. Remember when you were a child, I still get this way. I can be quite serious and intense, I know, but one place that I turn into a child is when I get to play in God's creation. So I look out the window like my kids and I feel exuberant and excited about getting to bundle up and go outside and jump into the banks of snow. And the joy of that feeling of being surrounded by snow, there's almost a a strange warmth to it even though it's cold outside when you're surrounded by it on every side and frolicking in the snow and throwing snow at each other, tackling one another, for those moments, the, the rough places of the world, the rocks underneath the snow, the tree roots, the fence posts are softened. And the world, for those few minutes, at least until you remember you have to snow your, uh, shovel your sidewalk, is a place of wonder and delight. I want you to remember the love of God the next time you wake up on a snowy morning. Maybe we'll get one soon. We haven't had one this winter. To take it up just a notch, remember the six weeks in 2015 from the end of January to the beginning of March (laughs) when the snow just kept coming and you looked out your living room window and you couldn't see because it was over the window? That's the love of God. So deep, so wide, so broad, so rich, so full, so waiting for you to just play in that love and rest in that love. It can be no deeper than it is. It can be no more encompassing than it is. It can be no stronger than it already is. And we must know it. If we are to love as Jesus is loved. First John four nineteen. we love, John says, because why? Because he first loved us. First John 3, 1, see what great love the father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And this is what we are. We are beloved children of the Father, those on whom God, the Holy Lord of glory, has set his affection. And this is who we are, children of the King, the King who knows our needs. And from this foundation, from this starting place, we are free by the power of God and by the Spirit of God to put aside all self-interest, all unforgiveness, all personal preferences, and to move forward in the way of love with the people sitting in this room and beyond. Do you know that love? This is where I want to end. Do you know his deep love for you? I'm not just asking you if you once knew it. Long ago. Do you know it? Do you know it now? Do you know it today? Do you know it at all at all times? Upon waking, when driving to work, as your last thought, enters your mind before drifting off to sleep. When everything is going your way and when nothing seems to be working out wherever that meets you this morning. When you're afraid and when you're anxious, when you're courageous and when you're peaceful, when you're satisfied and when you're confused. When you're lonely, and some of you I know are probably really lonely this morning. When your life feels too full of good things. Do you know his love? What about when you mess up, when you stumble, when you hurt someone that you love, when you do something of which you are ashamed, when you feel far from the God of the universe? Do you know his love? Do you know it's surrounding you, undergirding you, going behind you and before you and above you and below you? Do you know his love for you? Paul says that nothing can separate us from this love, the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. Absolutely nothing. Is this the defining reality of your life? Before anything else that you say about you, can you say, I am a beloved son or daughter of the God of the universe? This is very personal. Your spouse can't experience this love for you. And neither can your mom and dad, or for that matter, your children or your grandchildren. Do you know this love? For those of you who do, we're invited by Jesus to become a community of love. This is our defining mark. You know, our city, a couple years ago, put out, imagine Boston 2030. For the 400th anniversary of the founding of this city, I want to finish by saying, let's imagine Boston 2030 for the church of Jesus in this city. And in the spirit of the founder of Boston, John Winthrop, in his famous City on a Hill sermon, who said this, we must be knit together in his work as one man. We must entertain each other in brotherly affection. We must delight in each other, make others' conditions our own, rejoice together, mourn together, labor and suffer together. We are commanded this day to love the Lord our God and to love one another to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments. Let me ask you, what is his commandment? It is to love one another. Imagine the thousands of people who walk the Freedom Trail every summer. Imagine the thousands of people who every day get off the stop at Park Street and see the steeple rising above them. Imagine the people who are experiencing homelessness, who sit on the steps of this church almost every day. Imagine the state house employees. Imagine the governor himself If they would all say, oh, those people at Park Street Church, they love one another so amazingly well. I've never seen anything like it. And imagine if all those people would say that not only about Park Street Church, but about the one big C, holy, Catholic, and apostolic church committed to the gospel and the truth of scripture in the city of Boston, a church that embraces one another across ethnic and denominational and socioeconomic lines. Then don't you think that people who see that would want to say, tell me more about your Jesus. Tell me more about where that comes from. I want to learn more about this man that you proclaim is God incarnate, God raised from the dead, God ruling over the world. Imagine that day. These are Jesus' words, not mine. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. May it be so for his glory. May the name of Jesus be lifted up above everything else in this city for his glory. Jesus, the great lover of our souls. Jesus, the animator of our love for one another. Let's pray. Father, pour out your spirit, we pray, upon your church. Not only Park Street Church, but the churches in this city, in this nation, and around the world that know and proclaim Jesus as King, that stand upon your word as life. May you pour out your spirit upon us that we might walk in love with one another. And I do pray specifically for every man and woman and child in this room that you would give and bring to mind for them practical steps to take to love a person perhaps sitting on the pew beside them or 10 rows behind them this week. And to see that as a step of obedience that glorifies you, our Father in heaven. O oh Lord, lift up your son, that by lifting him up, people would turn to him in this city and have life we pray this for his name in his name and for his glory amen